<clears throat> okay so very good welcome back everybody it's been like a month no it's not even like a month it's been exactly a month since we last had one of these sessions so that's been a much longer gap than i anticipated uh made especially interesting uh those of you who watch exploring lord of the rings as well i was not available last night i was already asleep by class time uh i caught this nasty stomach bug from one of my children of course uh and was not great yesterday but feeling much better today this stomach bug though nasty is mercifully brief so uh have been recovering relatively well and excited to get back uh to mallory we are of course in the long home stretch here um really i think it would be better if we're going to stick with the horse racing metaphor to call the the uh the quest for the sunk rail really the final turn uh because it really is a turn right it's a pretty significant change of direction and that's what we're going to be looking at here tonight we got into it a little bit we came to galahad's arrival uh at the court and his pulling out of the sword and the stone and of lancelot's refusal to turn uh to pull out the sword and the stone um which is was kind of a good call on his part um but uh Tonight, we're going to be looking at the Grail quest as it is developing um, and uh, really begin to get sort of the feel of it and begin to see how vastly uh, things have uh, uh, things have changed. So anyway, that was uh, that's that's what we're going to be talking about here uh, tonight. First, quick announcements because lots of things coming up first um i wanted to emphasize we have another read our next regional moot is happening this month as is we have here in march on the 23rd saturday the 23rd is sunshine moot down near orlando florida uh so i hope that uh there'll be i know there are people who are in my normal attendees who are planning to come which is awesome um if you are anywhere down there uh in the central florida area i hope that you'll be able to come and join us it's going to be a great time uh and um uh, I really love these small regional moots, real opportunity to get to, to hang out and uh, uh, spend some time with folks. Uh, it's really neat. Fun to go to big gatherings, of course, always and get a chance to meet lots and lots and lots and lots of people. Uh, but it's really cool going to uh, these, uh, uh, the regional events have been uh, so much fun all year long. Uh, really looking forward to getting down to Florida. Uh, and uh, my, I'm going to be bringing assistance with me uh, down this time as well. One of my sons is going to come along with me. So uh that should be uh uh that should be that should be pretty cool uh anyway so look really looking forward to sunshine mood and any of you who are planning to come um you might want to so you can uh, respond to the call for presentations I, I know that sometimes when people are thinking about presentations at a conference like this it feels like super formal and everything and it needn't be and especially since every every um uh, conference is different. I mean, every all, every one of our regional moots is really, you know, sort of varies depending on the um, the people who are there and involved. Um, and anyway, it's so it really as an attendee, you can really help to shape what we do. One of the things that uh, you can do if you're planning to come, if you can suggest a topic for discussion, would be really neat. Uh, I love open discussions at small moots. Um, so anyway. Uh, I just encourage people uh, both to come and to get involved. Sunshine Mood is going to be great. And of course, not too far around the corner is Nader Moot, uh, our moot over in the Netherlands uh, in Leiden. And uh, that's on the 13th of April. That's a little bit further away. 
but not too much further. And I, I know at this time of the day, not too many of our European friends are listening live, but when you hear the recording, um, uh, I hope that you will take note of that and you will come and uh, uh, register for Nader Moot uh, to help uh, to come join us. That'll be, uh, that would be really cool there too. Um, anyway, lots of stuff coming up. And of course, Myth Moot happening this year. Really excited. Had a, uh, a lot of registrations for Mythmoot coming in over the last week. Uh, looks like we're going to have a great crowd this year again. Uh, really excited. Saw a, a few people register that I haven't seen in a few years. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, uh, to, to seeing them again. So uh, really, uh, really, really excited about that. Um, Anyhow, uh, those are the things, uh, big things that are coming up here uh, in the Signum world, um, and uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Actually, one uh, other thing that's coming, it's not as big of a public thing. Uh, I'm going to be doing my... Uh, I'm going to be doing my appearance before the state Senate, uh, the state of New Hampshire next week. Uh, our Senate bill comes up uh, in uh, the legislature next week. So I'm going to be putting on a suit and appearing uh, uh, before Congress here to talk about Signum, which will be fun. Uh, looking forward to that. It's our, it's our, it's our committee hearing uh, with the education committee uh, in the state of New Hampshire. So uh, definitely also, you know, a less boisterously good time than our regional moods, but it, sh it should, uh, should be should be pretty fun anyway off we go back to the text we have a lot of holy grail material to cover tonight and as i said a kind of a whole new world to explore too so let's get straight into that back to galahad and his arrival in the court so after he draws the sword out of the stone not that sword and stone but the other sword in the stone remember the one that merlin set going upstream a ways back and it just floated uh you know the the current sort of released it uh down to um uh down to uh to camelot uh just in time to show up at whitsuntide there for uh for galahad's arrival and yes arthur galahad is the hot prince uh here that is yes uh-huh that's him uh, okay, um, and anon he led him to the siege perilous, where beside sat Sir Launcelot, and the good man lift up the cloth and found there the letters that said thus, this is the siege of Sir Galahad the Hout Prince. Sir, said the old knight, wit you well, that place is yours. And then he set him down surely in that siege, and then he said unto the old man, now may ye, sir, go your way, for well have ye done in that ye were commanded. And recommend me unto my grandsire, King Pelles, and unto my lord, King Pesher, and say him on my behalf, I shall come and see him as soon as ever I may. This is the old knight who came, like, escorting Galahad to the court, not even told who he is. So the good man departed, and there met him twenty noble squires, and so took their horses and went their way. Then all the connectors of the table ruined marvelled greatly of Sir Galahad that he durst sit there and was so tender of age, and wist not from whence he come, but all for all only God. All they sighed, This is he by whom the Sancreal shall be enchieved, for there sat never none but he there, but he were mischieved. Then Sir Launcelot beheld his son and had great joy of him. Okay, so... 
Galahad's a, so Galahad is brought in by his guide who says like and this this place is yours and they whip off the 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 cloth right that is covering the seat to find dust cloth presumably uh, to find that his name has now been put remember there was the there was the 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 legend that was put there before right which is that this is the siege perilous and nobody shall sit here except the greatest knight of the world uh, and now it's got his own name on it right his own name now appears on the seat just to make sure you know everybody knows that it's his everything galahad does is the fulfillment of destiny right i mean that's clear from the very beginning um notice how even his parentage is uncertain right that is to say it's not just that uh like people don't know exactly but when they don't know who he is they think that he's come all he's he, they wish not from whence he come but all only god right i mean does is is it's is he actually miraculous like has he appeared is he is he an angelic figure in human form um is this a messenger of the lord come to the uh to the court of king arthur that's the question that the other knights of the round table are asking themselves they look and they're like man this guy is really young, right? And he's so tender of age. I mean, he's what, like 14 or something like that. Um, and uh, again, seems to come out of nowhere and wham, he's sitting in the, uh, he's sitting in the seat. Um, and yet James is pointing out the interesting sort of alignment here of, um, uh, this is he by whom the Sankriel shall be enchieved and none sat there, but he were mischieved. Uh, this sort of the, the compliment there of enchieve it and mischieve it. Um, I agree, James. That's pretty. That's pretty neat, right? Um, it kind of a, just sort of a pun there, I think. Um, but um, but an interesting one, right? Um, only he shall enchieve the sangreal, and anybody else who tries to sit in his seat, um, literally in this particular chair, right, or figuratively, who shall try to enchieve the Holy Grail, who will try to beat him to the Holy Grail, right, who will try to to enchieve the Holy Grail above him, shall be mischieved, right? Um, and yes, uh, Tomas King Pesher is the Fisher King. Uh, that's that is that's that's what that means. So King Peles and my lord the king pesher who's also in the family right so galahad is like related to him and he's like tell you know grandpops and uh you know and uh, my great uncle the fisher the fisher king that i'll be i'll i'll be there soon notice one of the things that we get emphasized from the beginning and this is something that i know is kind might seem kind of tiresome to a modern audience and certainly flies in the face of traditions of modern storytelling. There is no attempt at, uh, there is no attempt at like suspense or surprise at any point, right? Everyone knows that Galad is going to achieve the Holy Grail. This is not, there's no drama about this there's no suspense of any kind right um this whole portion of the story is based upon the fulfillment of that which is promised right it is about the consummation it's not about surprise um so i mean surprise is uh uh, I, I get super, super important uh, in the modern storytelling world. I mean, if you say like, oh, well, I guessed the ending of that before it happened. It's a 
terrible indictment, right, uh, on like a modern novel. Uh, they felt very differently about that um, in the Middle Ages, and uh, and this is the the satisfaction, even the sense of uh, pageantry about it. You know, like that. It's not. Yeah, it's not wondering what's going to happen. It is watching it unfold. To some extent, the drama is in the how, uh, not the what, Karita. I think that that's true. But it's not even necessarily that like the mechanism or something need be surprising. Again, surprise is not, um, I would say, even more than the drama, because there might be no drama in the modern sense of that. Um, but it is still... It is, it is meant to satisfy. Uh, and that sense of the satisfaction of what is expected, seeing come to pass that which, um, you know, is meant to be is something that uh, sort of becomes more, uh, sort of more and more uh, satisfying, um, depending on the circumstances. And this is something, it's a lot of this is uh, it's sort of cultural. Uh, I know uh, I, this is uh, I, I like I think about how Shakespeare does this as well. You know, I mean, just to choose a famous example, um, there's only one of Shakespeare's plays that I know of that has like a legitimate twist, like something which I think was actually meant to be a surprise to the audience. Um, and that's the winter's tale. Other than that, like, Again, you know what's going to happen. That's not the point. Um, it's just uh, seeing the story borne out. Um, Xenia says it reminds her of the kinds of books hobbits like to read. Uh, yeah, perhaps in some ways, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And Brian, I think you're right. I do think that there is a, a correlation between, or yeah, or, oh, to say the same thing another way. Um, I think that surprise is likely to correlate with a print culture. I'm kind of taking your comment and, and sort of turning it around. Um, in an oral, in, in a, a story with oral storytelling, of which this is still one, by the way, like despite the fact that this was written down and, uh, and indeed printed, one of the first printed books in England, um, it's still not, re uh, that, or oral storytelling is still a major part of what's going on. Even immediately after the printing press, books were still sufficiently uncommon that most people consumed them by ear, right? We just, by reading them aloud to an audience. Um, everybody didn't have their own copies of these books that they read on their own. Um, so um, anyway, yeah, it's... So I agree that in that context, Brian, the process of hearing the story build to its known conclusion um, uh, is 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 more satisfying. And I also agree, Brian, that kind of communal aspect is very important to that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and JJ, you're right. Disney did build an entire empire on telling rather predictable stories. There's clearly, I mean, uh, yeah. There's clearly a, still a market for this kind of thing, right? Um, uh, but um, anyway, uh, I bring this up in as much as to say 
I hope you're able to enjoy that kind of thing because the quest of the Sankriel is not going to have any drama uh, of the old, uh, you know, of the modern kind in it at all. Um, and if you can't appreciate the sort of triumphant rolling towards the inevitable conclusion that we're getting, you're going to kind of miss the pleasure uh, of this. Some of the pleasure, anyway. There's pleasure in other things, too. But that's definitely supposed to be part of the pleasure, I think, of this story. Because remember that it's not only that it's just the story of the Sankriel, right, uh, coming to that conclusion, which we've already had built up for us already to this point. But in a large part we're also we're now coming towards the climax of the arthurian court itself in fact in the next slide i think we're going to technically get to the apex of the arthurian court um and this is a this is part of what happens in the in the quest of the sancreal is part of that so the way in which you get on the one hand this sort of smaller story right the smaller story is galahad is the perfect knight and he's going to achieve the sancreal like that's it's not a small thing, but that is one thread, right? What is going to become clearer is what is the impact of that on the whole story? How does this relate to the entire story? Um, thinking that we're hearing the out, think and knowing in advance, right, what's going to happen in the outcome of this one thread of this one quest. We've had lots of quests, right? Lots of adventures that have happened. And this is another adventure, right? People are out seeking adventure in the in, in the adventures of the Sancreal. Um, both quest and adventure are very important words in this portion of the story, right? Um, and of course, as I say, we've seen this kind of thing before. Um, uh, what we are going to only begin to see is the significance of this, that it's not just the story of Galahad and the story of the Sancreal that is marching its way uh, towards its triumphant conclusion. In a sense, it's the entire story of King Arthur and King Arthur's court. Uh, there is a way in which we are, and this is the thing that I think is so important about uh, this, the quest of the Sancreal, uh, is that it is, um, it is in this moment that the story begins itself to reveal and to reflect upon the entire thing. What has felt at times, right, like a a, a wild and hectic series of adventures, um, not going in any particular direction, is given a shape retroactively by the quest of the Sancreal. And that's kind of interesting, right? Um, um, okay, anyway. Um, Yeah, and uh, Lil Atomic, I agree with you. Um, when you the desire to hear a story repeated also uh, defeats suspense, right? So the very fact that we like to read and reread stories or watch the same movie a bunch of times does suggest that there is something uh, satisfied. This uh, surprise only happens once, right? Uh, so if that's all the story gives to us is surprise. And have you ever noticed that sometimes like a film which succeeds at giving a shocking ending, right? Um, like the crying game or something is not usually one that you go back and watch again and again and again, right? Um, it, it's surprise is kind of a it's a short-lived thrill, right? Um, and it's not really what makes for a great story. But anyway, I digress now. 
Galahad has sat in the Siege Perilous. There are now 150 Knights of the Round Table. There has never been more than 149 at any given time. Now, sighed the king, I am sure at this quest of the Sancreal shall all ye of the Round Table depart, and never shall I see you again holy togetherers. Therefore, honours shall I see you together in the meadow, all holy togetherers. Therefore, I will see you all holy together in the meadow of Camelot, to just and to tourney, and after your death men may speak of it that such good knictes were here, such a day, holy togetherers. As unto that council, and at the king's request, they accorded all, and took on the harness that longed unto jousting. But all this maving of the king was for this intent, for to see Galahad private. For the king deemed he should not leakly come again unto the court after this departing. So were they assembled in the meadow, both more and less. Um, the remarkable repetition of that phrase, right? Um, all holy togetherers. This is a big deal, right? Obviously, we're... Um, um, I, I, our attention is rather drawn to it, right, by the fact that he repeats that phrase four times in this one speech, right? So on the one hand, you, we can see several things from this, right? One thing that we can see is, of course, Arthur is, this is a huge moment for Arthur, right? Arthur is um, moved, deeply moved by the fact that he has, his table is completed at last. This is the moment that has been, that Merlin was prophesying way back when the round table was founded, right? And Merlin was still around. Um, and now that day has finally come to pass. And of course, you you will remember, uh, and probably Arthur does too, many of the other much more uncomfortable predictions that Merlin kept going around making at the time. And I think that Arthur has a shrewd sense that the completion of the round table um, is also the, 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 the beginning of the end of the round table, right? Um, and, you know, this... That which he states right there at the beginning, right? Never shall I see you again, holy to getters. Um, now, in part, of course, this is just because he knows Galahad's not going to be around for long, right? Everybody knows Galahad has an appointment, right, to go and achieve the Holy Grail, and then he's probably not coming back from that. Um, the king deemed he's probably not going to come again um, after this departing. This is like the one day Galahad will ever be at court. And so he will never again have all of the uh, the knights of the round table holy together um but it's not just that right it's not just the fact that uh you know the complete set of 150 won't be there again but again this is this is king arthur at the top of fortune's wheel and he has i think a shrewd sense of this yeah terlonial it's a good way to think about it uh he has achieved the table round um in a way that he hasn't before and carrie so Carrie asks, is Arthur an old man now? Which is a wonderful question. And it's so hard to answer, Carrie, because of the way in which Mallory is so unconcerned with chronology. The answer is yes, Arthur's old now. Um, but of course you wouldn't know it. So it's like on the one hand, you know, Mallory keeps playing fast and loose with chronology such that it seems like, uh, like the dates just 
Absolutely. And I don't mean the dates as in like, uh, like the fifth century AD dates that he keeps giving or the you know, fourth and fifth century. I mean, the number of years that are supposed to have passed, right? Like with Alessandro La Orphelin, which was a, a, a really prominent example of that. Galahad, of course, himself, who seems to have aged 14 years in about two years. Uh, it, it, careful observers will note that in his confession, which I hope to get to tonight, um, when Lancelot confesses his love for the queen uh, to the particular hermit that he is talking with at that moment, he says that he has loved the queen out of measure for 14 years, which is the age of Galahad. So it's possible that he's being precise there. But anyway, uh, it's um, we'll come back to that. But he's been in love with the queen for quite a bit longer than that, presumably, but how long and who knows. So some of it, again, is just that Mallory is totally uninterested, it seems, in continuity of chronology. Um, but at the same time, Kara, you add to that the fact that he is perfectly willing to express as degrees of heroism, enormous vitality. So uh, Queen Guinevere might be 70 years old, who knows, right? But it doesn't matter because she's Guinevere and still the most beautiful woman in the world, right? Um, and uh, uh, King Arthur might be like 90 now, but it doesn't matter because he's King Arthur and can probably still cut a sword in half uh, if he really rears back. Uh, so, and, Arthur, and Lancelot is probably in his 60s or 70s, but it doesn't matter, right? So, I mean, we, we get that kind of thing happening too. So between those two things, it's really almost impossible to tell anybody's age in this story. Um, you know, and that's, um, yeah, as Gerald says, it seems like just yesterday that almost everything happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so it's, um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, it's just something that we have to try not to worry about, I think. Um, yeah, <laughs> Karina kind of likes it. They have something in life where time is simply not a concern. I agree. It's kind of liberating, isn't it? Um, the other thing I wanted to point out about this passage, again, which again, the repetition really kind of, to me, kind of drives home, is the, the pun here, right? The play on words, uh, which I'm drawing out in my subtitle there, and the, the sort of attention that underlies that play on words, right? Um, they are all holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y in modern spelling, right? They are all entirely together is what that phrase means. And that is clearly the primary sense of that phrase. But in the context of the Holy Grail, you can't really overlook entirely uh, the secondary meaning of holy togetherers, um, as of course, the problem is that they're trying to be all holy togetherers. Right. Um, that is, they're all setting out to seek for the Holy Grail. Um, in this moment, when Galahad comes and the uh, the the round table is complete, they all set themselves to holiness, and that is what is ultimately, in a sense, going to destroy uh, the round table. It is that final test having passed the other tests. Right, the test with Rome that we saw before, and 
all of the individual challenges uh, that have been met by its uh, by its individual members and and you know the establishment the firm establishment of the reputation of the court and everything it has established itself as the apex of worldly power and glory right and honor perhaps um now it is going they are going to attempt to be all holy together and that's where they will be really tested and that's the test at which which i can say tension is what i want to emphasize there on the one hand they're going to pass the test right that is a member of the round table is going to achieve the holy grail right so it's going to happen um but in doing so it's going to shatter the round table the whole the round table will never really recover from this because so many of them are going to be found wanting and many many of them are going to die in the course of this quest um yeah it will be almost like a pyrrhic victory tarlonio almost um And Than the king and all the Astates went home unto Camelot, and so went unto Evensong to the great monaster. And so after, upon that, to supper, and every knight set in his own place as they were to forehaunt. Then anon they heard cracking and crying of thunder, that him thought the, pulse, the palace should all to drive, and in the midst of the blast entered a sunbeam more clear by seven timers than ever they saw die and all they were elected of the grass of the holy ghost then began every knight to behold other and either saw other by their seeming fire than ever they were before not for than there was no knight that meet spake on word a great while and so they looked every man on other as they had been dumb than entered into the hall the holy grail covered with wheat samite but there was none that meeked see it nother home that bare it and there was all the hall fulfilled with good odours and every knight had such meates and drinkes as he best loved in this world and and when the holy grail had been borne through the hall then the holy vessel departed suddenly that they wist not where it become than had they all breath to speak and found the king yielded thankings to God of his good grass that he had sent them. Okay. Um, this is, I said the last time was the apex of the court. This might be it too, right? Uh, the two together, all holy together, right? Um, their tournament, their little, a little spontaneous tournament there, right? Him putting them all out on the field and having them all joust together. So the the display of their chivalry first, and now the blessing, right? As the, the Holy Grail comes among them and all 150 of them sitting around the round table, all of them fed by the Holy Grail, uh, the light of the Holy Ghost coming upon all of them. Notice how they themselves are changed by this, right? By their seeming, each saw the other fairer than ever they were before. And one of the things that I love about that is it's, it doesn't suggest that any of them are actually changed, right? What is changed is how each, and it, nor is, nor are they disguised, right? They're neither changed nor disguised. What is changed is how their neighbors see them, right? In the seeming, so like when, 
you look around at the round table, you see every everybody else looks more beautiful to you than they did before, right? So what changes is their vision, uh, is their own glimpse of um, uh, what is, uh, of who the rest of them are as if the light that is illuminating the room is itself the light of charity, right? Which in the light of charity, when you look at your neighbor, you see your neighbor as more beautiful and lovely than they are, right? Uh, certainly than they ever appeared to you before. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and dollar stroke, I agree. Isn't it interesting? So this is, uh, uh, at Pentecost, right, when the Holy Ghost comes upon the disciples uh, in the book of Acts, um, everyone speaks in tongues, right? They, they're, they're speaking is the notable thing there, right? As they're speaking and, and they speak in different languages and everybody else can understand them. And here, when the Holy Ghost comes upon them, uh, they're stricken dumb, right? And they can't speak at all. I agree that that is interesting, and I'm not quite sure what to make of it. Um, to suggest that they are the opposite of the apostles, that they, you know, I don't, I mean, certainly it conveys the sense of their awe, right, of their wonder, um, of their sort of sense of the, you know, of, of their own humility in that, in that moment, right, confronted by uh, the holiness that is surrounding them. Um, it's clearly also uh, Dolly, I would say the reason, of course, I mean, we think about Pentecost and the speaking in tongues that the, that the apostles do, uh, there in the book of Acts, um, this is an expression of the mission of the apostles, right? The Holy Ghost descends upon them, not like for fun, right? Or for no reason, it depends upon, it descends upon them for a purpose, which is, uh, to infuse in them the spirit to speak, right? That doesn't seem to be what Arthur's knights are meant to do, right? Not that, like, they're infused with the spirit to shut up is exactly what I mean either, but um, but that's clearly not the purpose here, right? And, and it suggests, I'm not sure what it tells us, if anything. I, I, I would tend to think that when we're see again the sort of if we're seeing inspiration here the obviously it's not inspiring them to speak um i think the inspiration that we see is in that perception right um in that perception of the fairness of their uh of each other seems to me to be the primary um inspiration um yeah yeah um yeah, so more of a vision thing than a speech thing. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, at Pentecost, they're supposed to go preach and convert. Here, they're going to seek and to, to, to see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's definitely along the lines that I'm thinking of there, Dolly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, yeah, Gerald is thinking along similar lines. Um that uh, the knights are themselves out to to seek and to see and remember how important that is uh, notice how even here nobody can see um uh either the grail or who bears the grail um there are variations among that and other uh, appearances of the grail that we've seen, but like to what extent can you see the grail and can you actually see the person holding it is kind of an indicator, 
right? Uh, I, that's a fairly reliable indicator of, you know, how close you are on the path to achieving the grail. Um, what you can, what you are vouchsafed to see is clearly an important element of the quest for the Holy Grail. So I really think uh, that we're onto something there. Um, yeah. Um, now, Carrie, you are right that they are, are all going to echo with many words they're taking up of the quest. There will be an, in, an important thing spoken as part of this, right? But it's not words directly inspired by the Holy Ghost as the Holy Ghost descends here. Um, but I agree, those, those, words, uh, those words are definitely important. Notice again, we've seen this before, uh, the two things that so, the three things which so often go together with the Holy Grail, one, the light, right? The shining of the light, which is uh, taken to be sort of a symbol of and, and kind of a, almost, a, uh, almost a, a, an attribute of the coming of the Holy Ghost, the, the, the light that enters like a sunbeam. Um, but also, of course, the good odors and the meats and drinks, Right, that one of the experiences of having the Holy Grail come is to be filled, um, uh, not only in spirit but in body. Uh, the association of good good odors uh, with the Holy Grail, and remember, not just with the Holy uh, odor is. Uh, there have been several times when we've seen smells correlating with spiritual states, right? Remember that night, the pa the Paynim knight who was killed by Sir Palamides, uh, whose corpse immediately uh, stank and putrefied instantly. Um, remember, uh, again, the other times that um, uh, delicious odors have accompanied uh, the Holy Grail. Um, that's fairly consistent. Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, and yeah, Bruce. Uh, this is, in a sense, a, a prevision of the feast uh, in heaven. Yes, that like to all to be sitting at the master's table. That does seem to be the kind of thing that is uh, uh, being suggested by uh, the 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 feasting. And it's interesting to me. It's possible to so here's. Um, Uh, this might seem kind of roundabout. Um, I've heard medievalists talk about the quest for the Holy Grail stuff and s talk about how this is a lot of what goes on here in the quest for the Holy Grail stuff just kind of reflects the weird obsession that um, like the, the, some of the weird hangups that the medieval church had about sex. Now, I'm not saying that the medieval church doesn't, I, by which, of course, I mean all the emphasis on virginity that is, of course, very strongly placed during the quest for the Holy Grail. And I'm not trying to say that that's not relevant to the quest for the Holy Grail, and I'm not trying to say that the medieval church did not have some strange hangups about sex, but what I am saying is I do think, I've always thought that that was a misunderstanding. As I've tried to express before, the thing about virginity is you can say that they thought too much of it or made an idol out of it or whatever you want, but it's a different thing to say that they really valued virginity than to say that they had hangups about sex. I know they're related, but it's not exactly the same thing. Um, you, for instance, if what we were talking about was merely abstinence from sex, like you should not have sex, instead you should abstain, 
it would be, you would think, associated with other kinds of abstinence. But notice how the Holy Grail is correspond correspond with is associated with the opposite of abstinence. It's it's associated with feasting, um, not only with meats and drinks, not only with good meats and drinks, but with the meats and drinks that each individual person likes best. That is their own tastes, right? Their own pleasure in eating and drinking is catered to by the quest for the, by, by the Holy Grail, right? So, um, and it's, um, and that seems to me, that's a striking thing. That is like the opposite extreme from abstinence and fasting, right? Um, there's a kind of there's a kind of indulgence in pleasure there, which tells me that we're not in the. I mean, I've read medieval texts which are just obsessed with the with the denial of the flesh, right, uh, and are trying to make the point very, very forcibly that you need to deny the pleasures of the flesh and seek the things of the spirit instead. And we do get that in some. I mean, that's that that is an element of the quest for the Holy Grail, but I do not believe that that is the essence of the quest for the Holy Grail. And my primary, the thing that uh, really prevents me from thinking that way uh, is the feast, the feasting, right? You, you don't get instant feast, indulging all of your private pleasures in something where like abstinence and the denial of the flesh is the most important thing, right? It's, uh, um, it, that's just not um, exactly how it works at all, right? So again, it's involved. I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but it is. It's easy to oversimplify that, and I want to be. I, I want to be careful uh, about that. And Nancy, you're right. Nancy says uh, she's not sure she's ever seen a text with so much emphasis on male virginity and chastity before. Yep, this is uh, pretty high on the list, definitely. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Karita. Good topic for the start of Lent. Yeah, you know, exactly. Uh, <laughs> oh, very good. Um, yeah, and Gerald, I wonder. Gerald says uh, uh, the grail itself seems to reflect the reward that comes after fasting and self-denial. Yeah, I mean, the feasting... Just as it's associated with the good odors, which themselves seem to sort of represent be like the tangible evidence of spiritual presence, right? Of spiritual blessing. Um, the feast itself seems therefore almost spiritual in its nature. It's not spiritual. It's they're physically eating meat and drink, right? Um, and yet it seems to be tied up sort of symbolically with that blessing. I don't know that I would think about it. Um, I, I, I don't know that I would think about it necessarily in terms of reward exactly, but, uh, it's more like the when you seek the nourishment of the spirit instead of the nourishment of the flesh, right? And when you seek to serve the spirit instead of the flesh, you receive blessing and spiritual food. And it is almost like the physical food that's being given here is is like a physical manifestation of that spiritual food, which doesn't seem like it doesn't make any sense, right? And yet, this is a kind of thing we're going to see throughout the quest for the Holy Grail. That is something which is a real physical thing, but it's also a symbol of something else, right? Um, this is an allegory that's being enacted, but those were real people, right? Um, you know, so 
Galahad can cut a dude's arm off. And on the one hand, he's like a dude who just had his arm cut off by Sir Galahad. And he's also, you know, the sin of covetous, right? That overlaying of the spiritual on the physical is something that we see throughout the quest for the Holy Grail. And so to some extent, maybe we can contrive a way in which the food uh, sort of works that same that same way here. And Bruce, of course, points out, just like Brandon uh, does um, in, uh, uh, in the Twitch chat as well, that it is um, like the Eucharist, right? Where we do get in, you know, th that place where we get most clearly that overlaying of the physical and the spiritual. Um, uh, and of course, the, the, uh, the transubstantiated host, which will be super relevant uh, to the quest for the Holy Grail as we will, as we will see. Okay, um, let's keep going. Now, said Sir Gawain, we have been served this die of what meat is and drink as we thought on, but one thing beguiled us, that we make not see the Holy Grail, it was so preciously covered. Wherefore, I will mock here a vow that to morn, without longer abiding, I shall labor in the quest of the Sancreal, and that I shall hold me out a twelve-month and a die or more if need be, and never shall I return unto the court again till I have seen it more openly than it hath been showed here. And if I may not speed, I shall return again as he that may not against the will of God." So when they of the table roaned, hard Sir Gawain say so, they arose up the most party, and mad such a voe as, as Sir Gawain hath mad. Anon as King Arthur heard this, he was greatly displeased, for he wist well he make not again say their, their avowes. Alas, said King Arthur unto Sir Gawain, ye have nigh slain me for the avow that ye have mad, for through you ye have braffed me the firest and the truest of Kniechtod that ever was seen together in any realm of the world. For one they depart from hence, I am sure they, shall, they all shall never meet more together in this world, for they shall die many in the quest. And so it forthinketh not me a little, for I have loved them as well as my life. Wherefore it shall grieve me right sore, the departition of this fellowship, for I have had an old custom to have him in my fellowship. Okay, so... Yeah, the fellowship has been broken, Tarloniel. It's really hard to avoid that, right? Now... Gawain's vow, on the one hand, this kind of seems inevitable, right? I mean, Arthur himself said, like, now everybody's going to go on the quest for the Holy Grail, so let's have a joust before everybody goes, right? He's already kind of acknowledging the quest for the Holy Grail is happening. Um, but exactly, so several of you, Devra, uh, Devorah, sorry, and Carita and Bruce are all saying, Wait, hang on. What's going on here? Bruce is saying, why Gawain of all people, right? Um, uh, that just seems wrong. You know, Devor is asking, is this just a selfish vow? Um, okay, so a couple things here. First of all, when Arthur was saying, I know that you're going to set off on the quest for the Holy Grail, so let's have a tournament first, he didn't think that all of them were going, right? 
he knew that some of them were going to go like it's Galahad's job clearly right like this is this is prominent in Galahad's job description that he's got to go and achieve the Holy Grail so even if only Sir Galahad alone goes off on the quest for the Holy Grail he's never gonna have his 150 again right this it's everything that he was saying in the all holy to getters passage still stands right he knows this is the only time the holy the 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 holy grail the round table will be complete right that doesn't mean that everybody on the round table needs to go off on the quest for the sancreal in fact it's really probably a bad idea and i think that you're at your instincts there bruce are completely correct um that Gawain, of all people, is the one making this vow, should be a pretty clear indication that this is not a good idea, right? Gawain is possibly the last knight on the entire round table who will be able to achieve the Holy Grail or should be trying to achieve the Holy Grail. What's his motive, right? One thing beguiled us that we might not see the Grail, it was so preciously covered therefore so he wants to see it more on the one hand that's exactly right that is that's what you sh- if you're on the quest for the holy grail that's what the quest for the holy grail means right not to find it as if it's a lost artifact that you can make a treasure map uh going to again that's not what the quest for the holy grail is about um but to 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 see it right to actually to see it which is a spiritual quest much more than a physical quest okay so it sounds like he's sort of going for the right thing, right? But why is he going for it, right? What is Gawain's motivation for this? Why does, why is he doing this? Remember, Gawain also tried to pull the sword out of the stone, right? Galahad's sword, right? Which Lancelot was like, I ain't touching this, it's Galahad's sword, right? And Gawain tried to pull that sword out of the stone. Um, there is, um, uh, yeah, Devorah thinks that it kind of sounds like he's sort of throwing a tantrum, you know, being like, oh, I didn't get to see it. I'm not going to give up till I get to see it. Um, yeah, and Bruce, I agree, probably saw it less than anybody else in the room. Um I think and I believe that events will prove this uh, to be correct, that it is primarily pride which is informing Gawain's um, decision to do this here. But here's the thing, and this is the thing that is so important for this whole section, right? Yes, it's pride, but remember we've had this conversation before, right? Haven't we had this conversation before where we're like, hey, um, isn't Lancelot being arrogant here and isn't isn't this kind of pride in yourself a bad thing from a Christian moral standpoint, right? And we've kind of uh, we've kind of talked about that a little bit, and we're like, yes, well, like like the whole winning worship thing, which seems kind of uncomfortable. Like, isn't that a contradiction of Christian humility? Uh, to which my answer has been, yeah, but no, right? It seems to be by the you know moral code that is being set out. I was I've been trying to argue that we don't see that kind of thing condemned. Um, yes, you can be overweening. You can, it's not that the excess of pride is not possible, right? Um, but in general, setting out to accomplish a great thing in order to win worship for your name has been totally legit, 
right? Everybody does it. And it's not just like a sin that everybody commits. So you don't really notice, like it has seemed to be pretty much okay. Right. Um, we've seen really nothing in the text to suggest that it wasn't okay. Like this has not been, this has not been a thing that has set Gawain apart, right? What has set Gawain apart is that he's a murderer and he's vengeful and spiteful. The fact that he's going to seek glory for himself, setting out to achieve this glorious thing, that's normal. And you can tell how normal it is because everybody else says they're going to do it too, right? That's not only normal, but kind of expected from every, from Arthur's knights, right? But in this world, Galahad's going to achieve the Holy Grail, Gawain. You know this. We all know this. What are you doing, Gawain? What are you trying to prove? Do you think by effort, by like going out and proving how awesome you are at what, even like fighting, I guess, um, you're pretty good at fighting, B plus probably, um, you're going to what? Pr make God show you the Holy Grail more, right? It's just not... This is the, there is, I think, a discordant note here. And the fact that it's Gawain saying it is, I think, our clearest signal that this is discordant. And that's what's so interesting me, to me about this, is that if Lancelot said exactly the same thing, it wouldn't sound so bad, right? It wouldn't sound fishy. When Gawain says it, it sounds super fishy, right? Like, okay, uh, this really, there has to be something wrong here. Um, and you get the clear sense that he's he's not setting out on this in the right spirit. And what's more, I don't think he really gets what's going on here, as indeed we'll see. Um, yeah, and Carrie, I agree to Arthur. I do think it's the vow to not come home again that hurt. Though notice how going does leave himself an out clause. Um, uh, uh, that is like, if the will of God is against him, he'll have to return because you, know, you can't fight against the will of God. So like, you know, he does leave himself an outcry. He doesn't say I will never return unless I achieve the Holy Grail. But still, you know, it's still a, a fairly uh, significant oath not to return um, for at least a long time. And many of them are indeed going to be killed uh, on this. So let's look, let's look at some examples. Let's look at how, once we set out on the quest for the Holy Grail. Some more on this idea of how things are different. So here's King Bagdemagus, and this is pretty early on. Uh, Sir Galahad, remember he shows up with no spear and no sword, just an empty scabbard, right? Because his sword is waiting for him sticking in the stone, and he still doesn't have a shield, right? How he jousts on the field in front of Camelot without a shield, I am not 100% sure, but he appears to be doing it because he's the best knight in the world who needs a shield. But he doesn't have one, and I guess needs wants one anyway uh, to accessorize, presumably. And there, so Bagdemagus and... Uh, 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 oh, there's somebody else there with them. I forget who the other one, the third one is, but Galahad and Bagdemagus are both there. And 
they find this shield, right? And they're told the whole story about this shield and has this special magic shield clearly destined for Galahad and the best knight in the world who sh just shows up, right? You're standing there being like, oh, what's the story of this white shield? And you're told the story and the, and it's, and it, it is set aside for the greatest knight in the world, in, in the history of the world to come. And then Galahad walks in with no, he's like, I don't have a shield. Right. And so you're bag to Magus. What do you do? Right. So here's what Bagdamagus does. Fun King Bagdamagus took with him a good squire. So he takes the shield. He's like, I'm going to take it, even though I know I, I've been told that if I'm not the greatest knight in the world and I take the shield, I'm going to I'm going to be mischieved. And I'm really pretty sure I'm not the best knight in the world. Right. I'm not totally self-delusional on that point. But to back down would be cowardly. Right. Not to take the adventure that will come is not the thing. Right. So I'm going to do it anyway. So he sets off. Uh, took with him a good squire to bring tidings unto Sir Galahad how he sped. Found they rode twelve mile and come to a fire valley before an hermitage. And found they saw a knight come from that parties in wheat armor, horse and all. And he come as fast as his horse meek ren and his spear at his rest. Then Sir Bagdemagus dressed his spear against him. Now this is all sounding like stuff that we've seen before, right? and bracket upon the wheat knicked, but the other struck him so hard that he brast the milers and thrust him through the right shoulder, for the shield covered him not as at that time. And so he bar him from his horse, and therewith he alicht and took his wheat shield from him, sighing, Knit, thou hast done thyself great folly, for this shield ought not to be borne, but by him that shall have no peer that liveth. He's like, which part of that did you not understand, Sir Bagdemagus? And thon he come to Bagdemagus's squire and bade him bear this shield to the good knight Sir Galahad that thou left in the abbey and greet him well by me. Sir, said the squire, what is your nam? Talk thou none heed of my nam, said the knight, for it is not for thee to canoe, nother non-earthly man. No, fire seer, said the squire. At the reverence of Jesu Christ, tell me, be what cause this shield may not be borne, but if the bearer thereof be mischieved. Now, sin thou hast conjured me, said the Canite, this shield behoveth unto no man, but unto Sir Galahad. Can I spell that out any more clearly? Um, so, uh, this knight, who is he? After he finishes talking to the squire here, he vanishes. He doesn't just ride away. He vanishes, right? It is not for thee to know none, no, another non-earthly man what his name is, right? This is clearly like an angelic messenger who has descended in the form of a knight just to skewer King Bagdemagus's shoulder, right, in order to, to correct uh, that like, this is what will happen. So it's not like bad stuff might happen to you later on, or you might meet somebody who is bigger than you and is going to kick your butt. No, like an angel is going to come and skewer you is what will happen if you take this. It's a different world. Again, King Bagdemagus has acted the way that Arthurian knights are supposed to act, the way that knights of the round table have always done, right? You take the adventure that comes. You don't back down from adventures just because you think you might get hurt, right? 
that would be cowardly. You'd face them and take the adventure, whatever it might be. And yet it's clear King Bagdemagus was wrong to do that. And like stupid wrong, right? I mean, this was great folly for him to do. It's like Galahad was right there. This is obviously Galahad's shield. What are you doing, King Bagdemagus, right? There, you weren't even deluding yourself that this shield was meant for you, right? It doesn't work that way. Your job was not to be like, I shall not back down from a challenge because I am afraid. No, your job was to be like, I am not worthy of this shield. Galahad is. This is Galahad's shield and Galahad's quest. I'm going to leave the shield to Galahad, right? That was clearly the right thing uh, the right thing to have done under the circumstances, which would not have been the case. You know that if Sir Tristram had come across a shield, like, you know, 150 pages ago, if Sir Tristram had come across a shield that said only the greatest knight in the world could, there's a chance that he might've been like, oh, well, Lancelot's the greatest knight in the world. So, you know, I wouldn't like to do that would be an insult to Lancelot, but probably not. He probably would have taken it, right? He's not gonna back down from something like that. Um, yeah, Devora, I, I agree. Uh, it does make uh, uh, make me too think of Jacob wrestling with God and asking his name. Um, yeah, and the refusal, right, by the night to 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 give his name. Um, yeah, and Gerald, you're right. It is hard to change years of habit. Um, on the one hand, you know, it's easy to make jokes about it and be like, none of the our, the Knights of the Round Table seem to have gotten the memo, but there was no memo, right? And it's much more severe than that. Everything has changed. Uh, the old rules don't apply anymore. It is a very different thing to establish earthly supremacy and earthly honor. To go from there to seeking holiness, you're playing a different game and the rules are different. Um, and again, they just don't, they don't seem to be... Uh, um, they don't seem to get it. Well, Bagdamagus gets it now. Uh, and here's the kind of adventure that you're likely to come across in the quest for the Holy Grail. Standard day in the quest for the Holy Grail, not like what used to happen very often. This is Galahad uh, doing the acting here. Now, say the good man, go to the tomb and lift it up. And so he did and heard a great noise, and piteously he sighed that all men meeked here, Sir Galahad, the servant of Jesu Christ, come thou not nigh me, for thou shalt mock me, go again there where I have been so long. But Sir Galahad was nothing afeard, but heave up the stone, and there come out a foul smoke, and after that he saw the foulest vigour leap thereout that ever he saw in the likeness of a man. And then he blessed him, and wist well that is blessed himself, and wist well it was a fiend. Then heard he a voice say, Sir Galahad, I see there environ about thee so many angels that my power may not dare thee. Reap so, Sir Galahad saw a body all armed lie in that tomb, and beside him a sword. Now, fire brother, said Sir Galahad. Let remove this body, for he is not worthy to lie within this churchyard, for he was a false Christian man. 
so um there's a demon right living in this tomb and of course you many of you will be remembering the um uh quotation the near quotation right um the, what this demon says to galahad is very like what the deem the legion of demons living in the pigs or who are soon to be cast in the pigs or who are in the the demoniac and cast into the pigs by jesus say right um uh yeah that is the, these are the words that is to say that these are the words of a demon who knows that his time is up Right, and he's saying, "Please don't make me go again there where I have been so long," which place, of course, is hell, uh, which is, of course, the prison and torment of the demons, not the place where the demons uh, happily live torturing other people. Um, but uh, anyway, um, so Bruce, yes, Galahad is. So very parallel to Jesus here and in so many places. Um, uh, whether you think it needlessly messianic or not, it is certain the whole story of Sir Galahad is extremely messianic. Um, uh, yeah, and Tarlonio, you're absolutely right. That is indeed uh, why you bury non-baptized folks and unhallowed ground because yeah you're like you don't want to invite demons into the churchyard do you um those of you who remember from the dracula class will also recall that dracula was able to hide in the grave of the suicide at whitby right because it was a suicide buried in, in unhallowed ground right there was there was unhallowed ground in the churchyard and so dracula was able to take refuge uh in the grave of the suicide at whitby same principle right um yeah yeah um so absolutely um galahad remember the vision right the influence on the site the importance of seeing the demon who can see more clearly than he is comfortable with, right? The fiend here um, sees the spiritual truth, right? Galahad is not the greatest knight in the world, not just because he has bigger thews than his father, right? But because he is environed about with uh, lots and lots of angels, right? Um, just like Elisha the prophet was in the Old Testament, um, just as Jesus suggests that he is or could be if he chose to be uh, in the New Testament. Um, if you have eyes to see, which apparently the demon does, you can see these things, right? Um, this is the kind of power, the kind of strength that Galahad has. This is Galahad's true strength, um, even more than his strength of arm, which is exceptional when he does meet lancelot if you noticed he knocks him down horse and man right so uh we know that he is in fact physically stronger than lancelot as well but that's not really the whole point um yes he was chosen and compassed about for this quest carry absolutely um uh and uh, no bruce i do think that the armor uh the, I, I think it was fine for the dude to be armed uh, the dead dude that is to be armed. I don't think that's a sign of falseness in itself. Um, it's just that um, I don't think so. 
anyway, I just think that he's uh, uh, the significance. I think there, Bruce, it's not just that this was some random false Christian man. This was a false Christian knight in particular, right? Um, and therefore, we can see this entire episode growing into a symbol of the quest itself. This kind of thing is happening all the time in the quest for the Holy Grail, right? Just as this this false knight was given Christian burial inappropriately, right? Because his soul was obviously not in a state of grace. So there are knights in the round table, right? Who are also false Christian men. And what is the consequence of that? They give a foothold for the fiend, right? Uh, evil and sin is, uh, is, is, is enabled by them to take up residence within a place otherwise holy, like the churchyard, right? Um, so, yeah, I think it's very important symbolically that the false Christian man in question was a knight, uh, because again, it it uh, and 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 what happens? Galahad is here to clean house, right? He is here to reconsecrate the ground. He is here to cast out. Uh, at, at the coming of Galahad, the false knights uh, are to be cast out, and the fiends are to be banished, right? That's part of what he does. Um, and yes, Carrie, we do get the testimony of the demons um, uh, uh, confirming Galahad's uh, praise. And I think it's thinking of his worship there, Carrie, is really interesting, right? Um, he does not worry about his earthly worship. He doesn't think about his reputation, right? But we can see that Galahad has worship in spades of a different kind. Right. Even the demons recognize him and know, and the angels obviously gather around him and know his worship in the spiritual realm is very, very great. And that's what matters now. It doesn't matter. He's always hiding himself. He's Galahad doesn't care about his reputation. Right. I don't think we've seen a knight who seems to care less about his honor and his worship and his reputation uh, than Galahad does. But as we see, it is very fully established in the spiritual realm. All right. Now, of course, one of the uh, uh, fun features, the key fun features about the quest for the Holy Grail is the tendency of to, for us to be given long explanations of things. Right. So we're going to um, um, we're going to have lots of allegorical adventures and then we're going to have a convenient hermit or recluse uh uh male or female right that's a that's a it's a, it's a pretty evenly gender balanced uh, uh career move um who are available to uh explain the allegory of the adventure that you just experienced or the dream that you just had um this was a great time to be a hermit um so galahad that that good squire who brought the shield back from King Bagdemagus, right, is uh, is knighted by Galahad, and that's Sir Milius, who then immediately goes and screws it up, taking the left. So first, right, he comes to a fork in the road, he comes to a crossroads, and he takes the left-hand fork. You're on the quest for the Holy Grail, man. You should know better than that. And then he sees the crown, right, uh, and, and he, like, seizes the crown and tries to run off with it. And then these two knights come and knock him off his horse and mostly kill him. Um, Galahad takes him to an, an, a hermitage and 
says, No, will I depart, Sir Galahad said, for I have much on hand, for many good knechtes be full busy about it, and this knecht and I were in the same quest of the Sancria. Sir, said a good man, for his sin he was thus wounded, and I marvile, said the good man, how ye durst tack upon you so rich a thing, he's speaking to Melius now, right, so rich a thing as the order of knechthood is, without clean confession. Oh, there was Melius's first mistake. He wasn't shrived before he took upon him the order of knighthood. Bad sign from the beginning. That was the cows that ye were bitterly wounded, for the way on the reeked hand, but token in the highway of our Lord Jesu Christ. Duh. And the way of a good true liver. And the other way, but token it the way of sinners and of misbelievers. There was a perfectly good flag right there. It was like a signpost that spelled this out for you, Sir Melius. And Juan the devil saw your pride and your presumption for to talk you to the quest of the Sancreal and thought mad you to be overthrown, for it may not be achieved but by virtuous living. Also, the reading on the cross was a signification of heavenly deeds and of knightly deeds in God's workers and no knightly deeds in worldly workers. And pride is head of every sin. That cows it this knick to depart from Sir Galahad, and where thou took the crown of gold, thou dead sin in covetous and in theft. All this was no knickly deeds. And so, Sir Galahad, the holy knick which fought with the two knickes, the two knickes signifieth the two deadly sinners which were holy in this knight, Sir Melius, and they meek not withstand you, for ye are without deadly sin. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Uh, classic example, right? When you're on the quest for the Holy Grail and you come to a crossroads and there's a cross, a stone cross at the crossroads, which tells you not to go one way and to go the other way, you do it. Again, like in the old system, you sought the path of most resistance, right? It was most honorable to seek out the most adventures and to put yourself into the most peril that you possibly could have, right? That's not how it works anymore. When it says you're supposed to go this way, you should go that way, right? And then, of course, he immediately exacerbates it by the stealing of the crown, which was a pretty obvious bad move. And so he's then taken down by two knights who simultaneously represent the sins of pride and covetous. Which also, of course, uh, you can see map clearly onto the quest of the Sancreal himself, the quest of the Sancreal, which he did not take upon himself rightly, right? Why did he do it? He did it for pride. Um, he took on the, himself the order of knighthood without queen confession. Now, look, Sir Melius seems like a good dude, right? I mean, he, he was charming. He seemed cute and like not wicked. He was not like a Sir Gawain wannabe or something. I mean, he seemed like a good-hearted young lad and and uh, the kind of kid who might have really thriven back in the old system, right? But he does everything wrong from the very beginning. And again, I can't help but think back to Sir Gawain and Sir Gawain's oath, right? Um, 
covetous and pride. Covetous and pride are the two things that are identified um, as the sins that Melius did wrong. This guy who wrongly entered into the quest of the Sankhrao and had really no business being there. Covetous and pride, right? Those are the two things that seem to be driving um, Gawain as well, right? Pride in himself, covetous of honor, covetous of glory. Um, you know, again, back in the old days, that wasn't a bad thing. Now this is, now it's a, now it's a bad thing. Um, yeah, yeah, Carrie, exactly. Choose the right-hand path, the light, and people are dressed in white. I agree. You follow, you, it doesn't, shouldn't take that long, right? It's not a difficult code. Once you get the idea that you're supposed to be interpreting things allegorically, it seems like it should be fairly simple, right? And yet, um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, so not, but Nancy is right. Nancy is saying that you, we have to be fair here. Um, the decisions that the knights make, they generally have to make before they get an explanation of what is going on here, which is true. And it's true that the symbols aren't always consistent and that even sometimes the holy men who explain them to you might be a fake holy man who's actually a demon trying to lure you to your destruction. All of that is perfectly true. But you see, it's not a riddle, right? Um, uh, I can't help but think of the Indiana Jones movie here, right? All of the, you know, the trials that lead up to the Holy Grail, right? Which Indiana Jones is able to pass and the other people aren't able to pass. It's not about being clever, right? It's not about knowing that, you know, in the Hebrew alphabet, Jehovah begins with an I, right? Um, these tests are not, you're not meant to crack the code, right? That's not the point. Um, and it's not like the most cunning allegorist who is going to achieve the Holy Grail. Um, Galahad did not run into the problems that Sir Melius ran into, not because he's better at reading signs, but because he's just better, full stop. Um, his, the purity of his life makes it so that he does the right thing doesn't have to try. He just does it, right? Um, it's, to some extent, Nancy, I think one of the ways that I would say this, the allegories aren't being done for their benefit. They're being done for ours, right? The allegorical symbols that Sir Melius encounters are not designed to instruct Sir Melius, except possibly after the fact. They're designed to instruct us, right? It's not to, they're not to be a, a riddle, the solving of which would have led Sir Melius to success. That's not the point, right? That certainly wasn't what they were set out for him. Rather, the way in which he fails is designed to explain to us why he failed, right? And what success would have looked like, right? Um, yeah, the, the allegories are weeding out the unworthy, yeah. Um, those whose heart is not in the right place. They demonstrate to us, the readers especially, the extent 
and manner in which their hearts are not in the right place. Um, it, it is not. It is a test that you can pass, but again, it's not. It's a test you can pass, but it's not a test that you can study for. You know, it's just. Uh, it's just the way that it is. Um, you know, JJ, that's a really interesting. Uh, parallel that I hadn't really thought of before, like Jesus speaking in parables. Um, uh, yes, and he does explain them to his disciples, um, but he doesn't explain them to everybody, and even says that part of the reason he speaks in parables is everybody's not going to understand, right? That's He doesn't speak in his parables despite that, but because of that, he says. Um, <laughs> yeah, door struck. I like that. He's suggesting a uh, uh, GPS directional system, like Sir Galahad's GPS directional system. <laughs> Turn right. Turn right. At the intersection ahead. Turn right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that would be really good. Okay. Um, a, another really interesting example of this. So, Sir. Galahad gets to the Castle of Maidens, right? Which is, which we've seen before, right? There was a big tournament there. Um, you'll remember. Uh, and uh, that was the big one before the tournament at Lonazep. And um, it's a disappointing because you get to the Castle of Maidens and you think you're getting to the uh, the part from, uh, like the part that they're making fun of in Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the Tale of Sir Galahad, but you're not, right? Don't worry. Because I know you were all thinking that when Sir Galahad was going to the Castle of Maidens, right? Uh, and then the reality was kind of disappointing. Don't worry, don't worry. That passage, that that scene in the whole in Monty Python and the Holy Grail is not based on nothing. We'll get there. Um, it's going to be Sir Percival, not Sir Galahad, but we'll get there. Anyway, um, uh, so he goes to the Castle of Maidens, and there are the seven brothers. Uh, the seven brethren who are the like you know wicked knights who hold the castle of maidens and kill everybody and uh, he drives them out but he doesn't kill any of them that's important right it's not a sign of his failure it's a sign of his success and those seven knights go off and get killed by sir gawain right sir gawain and sir uwain and sir gareth wasn't he the third one i think um and it's interesting because see, this is a this is a, on the one hand, this one was super easy, right? Um, this is like the uh, uh, the beginner level allegorical test, right? Just to make sure that you're paying attention. So there's this castle where these people are being held and uh, held captive by these seven knights who are ruling over them, and they're being uh, you know, and the, 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 the wicked ways of the seven knights are oppressing them. And then Galahad comes in and drives the seven knights away and sets all the people free, right? Like this is almost a gimme from an allegorical standpoint, right? And so it's kind of thrown in as a gimme by the, uh, uh, the hermit that's talking to Sir Gawain and company here. 
Also, I may say you that the castle of Midens betokeneth the good souls that were in prison before the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the seven connectives betokeneth the seven deadly sinners that regnant that time in the world. And I may liken the good connect Galahad unto the son of the high father that liked within a maiden and booked all the souls out of thrall. So did Sir Galahad deliver all the maidens out of the woeful castle. Now, Sir Gawain, said the good man, thou must do penance for thy sin. Now we'll come back to Gawain and his penance in a second. As I say, that's a super easy allegory, right? But here's the really interesting thing uh, that, again, is, is, is a really good indicator of how these allegorical things work. So those same seven knights were slain by Gawain and his people. So wait, so those seven knights were the seven deadly sins. So Gawain and Uwain and Gareth killed the seven deadly sins. That's got to be good, right? Is this a sign of spiritual progress for Gawain? Is, you know, Gawain cleaning up where Sir Galahad himself failed? No, not at all, right? <laughs> that's, um, uh, that's not, in fact, what happened in any way. Um, that was wrong for them, right? It was a sign rather of their wickedness in comparison. Killing folks is bad. And the good knights in the quest for the Holy Grail don't kill people. Gawain driving them away without slaying them was good. Uh, the fact that Gawain killed them shows that he's not going the right direction. And remember the whole, was it murder or was it manslaughter question, which has come back again and again ever since the story of Sir Balin and his disagreement with the old uh, lady of the lake, right? Which ended in her decapitation rather suddenly. Um, we've seen this all the time, right? Like somebody accusing a knight of a murderer and that knight having to say, as Sir Lancelot has on occasion, it's possible I've killed a lot of people, right? But I didn't mean it. Um, you know, I, as we've said, you know, knighthood is a contact sport, uh, and things like this happen all the time. And there's a big difference between killing a knight in battle and murdering a knight like Gawain did with Lamarack. But, um, uh, that distinction also seems to be another one of the things which is fading here or which has changed in the new world of the quest for the Holy Grail, right? Um, there's no indication that Gawain, Gareth, and Uwain teamed up on and murdered these seven knights. They beat them three on seven, right? Um, so it's not that it was a dishonorable murder on their part, but the fact that they killed them is a bad sign. Um, to have the blood of another man on your hands is still not something that good Grail Knights do, right? And again, shows the, uh, uh, shows, it, it demonstrates the state of the heart of the person. Um, and um, now, Gerald, I would not say that not understanding allegory is a sin. It's not that, because um, again, this is not about interpretation. This is not about like, to, you know, uh, he who is the most skilled interpreter of the allegory is the most righteous. No, it's just that the one who is the most righteous is going to 
wind his way through so that the hermit later on will explain how he did all the right things. Um, uh, again, the allegory, there's a reason all this stuff is always explained after the fact, right? Um, and nobody, you don't see any of the knights pulling out their like, uh, you know, travel guide, you know, like a, a, a knight's guide to allegory, um, a Holy Grail edition, like nobody does that. Nobody even attempts to do allegorical interpretation on the fly, right? Um, it's just, if your heart is in the right place, you're going to do the right thing, and it's going to get explained to us afterwards. We are the ones who are the beneficiaries of the uh, of the allegory. And but, and but, Nancy, I agree. Now that I've said that, somebody absolutely does need to publish that. <laughs> that should totally exist. Um, but, um, yeah. Okay, anyway, oh, uh, uh, Dolly, uh, that leaked within a Maiden, uh, that leaked uh, means alights, like like a bird perches or leets, like it would leet upon a branch, right, when it comes to rest on a branch. Um, uh, just so the sun, the second person of the Trinity, descended into the Virgin Mary um, and alights upon her, alights within her. Right, um, it is a reference to the uh, uh, to the to the virgin birth there, um, and the divinity of Jesus. So notice, uh, uh, Galahad is not just being paralleled to Jesus of Nazareth, like the incarnate Christ. Um, he's being paralleled directly to the to the uh, that. To the second person of the Trinity, right? Uh, I know they're the same thing, but you, you can emphasize things in different ways, right? You can emphasize Jesus's godhood or his humanity. Uh, his godhood is being very strongly emphasized in that particular expression there. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Good. Okay. Anyway, back to Gawain here. Now, Sir Gawain, said the good man, thou must do penance for thy sin. Sir, what penance shall I do? Such as I will give thee, said the good man. Nay, said Sir Gawain, I may do no penance, for way knicked is adventurous, many time has suffered great woe and pine. Well, said the good man, and then he held his peace. And on the morn, then Sir Gawain departed from the hermit and betoked him unto God. And by adventure he met with Sir Aglavale and Sir Grifflet, two knechtes of the Rune Table, and so they three rode four dies without finding of any adventure. And at the fifth die they departed, and Everich held as fell them by adventure. Okay. Um, I love Ed. Uh, uh, too old not to. I think that uh, in on. Twitch, that's a, a wonderful synopsis. Uh, he paraphrases Gawain's answer as, don't bother me with penance. I put up with enough as it is. Yeah. Okay, so if you think that the woe and pain that you encounter during the normal life of an adventurous knight should basically count as penance, right? Um, if somebody says you need to do penance for your sin and you're like, man, I already suffer a lot. I think that should count. It's just possible that your heart is not in the right place, right? Um, this is um, 
Exactly, Karita. Not all suffering is penance. Um, uh, the point of penance is not merely to endure pain for no reason, like randomly, right? Um, you need to be repenting for your sin. Repentance is the important thing. Is the important thing. Penance is the way you show that you mean it, right? That's the point of penance, and this is um, not at all what we're seeing here. So these hardships that you experience for the sake of your own glory and reputation, right? That's almost, you could say, the opposite of penance. And JJ, I agree. When somebody is, uh, when the holy man is going to give you penance, nay is not, in fact, usually the best answer. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, the... the it's not. It's not even about the killing of the seven knights. I think. I think. I think that when um, the holy man here is the good man is saying that you must do penance for thy sin. I think he's opening up an even bigger can of worms than that, right? Gawain has plenty of sin that he really could stand to do uh, to do penance for, and yet Devorah, I agree. His reaction. Well. Okay then, right? And he doesn't even doesn't even try to argue, right? Um, yeah, he's there to warn you not to argue with you, Nancy. Exactly it. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's that's fantastic. What else can you say to Sir Gawain in this in this kind of an instance, right? And then there's Lancelot. So Lancelot has this experience where he is in this semi-dreaming state. He doesn't know if it's a dream or if it's really happening, where he is right outside the chapel where the Holy Grail is, right? And someone is being healed by the Holy Grail. And notice again the emphasis on the eyes. He can't open his eyes. He's seeing it with a kind of spiritual vision, right? He's seeing it in a dream, Um but he can't open his physical eyes to see it, um, even though he's right there. Um, then anon Sir Launcelot walked and set him up and bethought him what he had seen there, and whether it were a dream is or not. Right so heard he a voice that said, Sir Launcelot, more harder than is the stone, and more bitter than is the wood, and more naked and barer, than is the leaf of the fig tree. Therefore go thou from hence, and withdraw thee from this holy places. And when Sir Launcelot heard this, he was passing heavy, and wist not to do. And so departed sore weeping, and cursed the time that he was bore, for than he deemed never to have worship more. For though warders went to his heart, till that he knew wherefore he was called so. That is, I... Uh, until he knew, understood why he was being called harder than stone, more bitter than the wood, and naked and more bare than the leaf of the fig tree. He, like, really needs uh, a hermit or recluse to explain that to him. Um, so he's, he, he's, he's going to be bothered by this until somebody explains it. Found Sir Launcelot went to the cross and found his helm, his sword, and his horse away. And then he called himself a very wretch, and most unhappy of all connectors. And there he sighed, My sin and my wickedness hath brought me unto great dishonour. For when I sought worldly adventures, for worldly desires, I ever achieved them, 
and had the better in every place, and never was I discomfort in no quarrel, where it reeked, where it wrong. And now I tack upon me the adventures to seek of holy things, now I see and understand that mine old sin hindereth me and shameth me, and I had no power to stir neither speak when the holy blood appeared before me. He, this is a good sign. That is, it's a good sign that he understands. He didn't need somebody to explain that to him, right? He gets, and this I think is the big difference between Lancelot and all the other worldly knights, right? By which I mean the knights who are not the big three, the big, the spiritual big three. Um, he gets it. He understands why he was prevented. And JJ, yeah, he gets it way more than Gawain. Gawain's sort of the opposite end of that of that extreme, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Gerald, that is exactly the big question. He gets it. But is he repentant about his old sin now? He understands what is keeping him. And what's more, he understands, like the other knights haven't understood, that the world is different, right? He was the, he aced every test of worldly chivalry, right? He was the best at that, and he's never been discomfited. But now it doesn't work anymore. Right now he takes upon me the adventures to seek of holy things. Now I see that my old sin hindereth me and shameth me. He knows what he has to do. Is he going to be able to do it? Soon after this, he meets with somebody who explains how he's harder than stone, uh, bitterer than wood, and barer than the fig tree, uh, than the leaves of the fig tree. And confesses himself. Sir, said the good man, hide none old sin from me. Truly, sighed Sir Launcelot, that were me full loth to discover, for this fourteen year I never discovered own thing that I have used, and that may I now wheat my sham and my disadventure. And then he told there the good man all his life, and how he had loved a queen, uh, queen who shall remain nameless, unmeasurably and out of measure long. And all my great deed is of armies that I have done for the most party was for the queen's sake, and for her sake would I do battle were it wreaked other wrong. And never did I battle all only for God's sake, but for to win worship and to cause me the better to be beloved. And little or knocked, I thanked never God of it. Then Sir Launcelot said, Sir, I pray you consail me. Sir, I will consail you, said the hermit, if ye shall ensure me by your connecthood that ye shall no more come in that queen's fellowship as much as ye may forbear. And then Sir Launcelot promised him that he knowed by the faith of his body. Sir, Look that your heart and your mouth accord, said the good man, and I shall ensure you, ye shall have the more worship than ever ye had. 
Yeah, Karita, not all suffering is penance and not all understanding is repentance. I agree. Here he is repenting with his mouth, right? Look that your heart and your mouth accord. Um, did you notice how he's been assigned penance here? Not seeing Guinevere anymore is in part his penance here. Again, show me that you're serious. Show God that you are serious in repenting from this sin. If you repent, then you will actually give it up, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, Good, Brian, that's a, that's a great point. Notice what he repents and what he doesn't repent. Uh, as Brian points out, he doesn't say a thing about adultery. Not a thing. There could be two causes for this. One, he could still be hiding that, right? Lancelot could be not coming completely clean with the hermit here um, and still trying to dodge it. Uh, it's possible. Lancelot sounds like... He, I don't think the problem here is Lancelot's words. I think the problem is going to be, as will be discussed later, his unstableness. Is he going to be able to keep... To what he's declaring here. I don't get the impression that he's holding out on the hermit here. Um, and notice the things that he does repent of. Like when he talks about, so the essence of his sin is that he has loved the queen, a queen, some queen or other, unmeasurably and out of measure long, right? The lack of measure, the lack of proportion of his love for the queen is what he confesses. He does not confess sex. He does not confess adultery with the queen. You'll remember that according to my theory before, even though it seemed kind of, it didn't seem to fit super well with every scene that we, every passage in the Elaine sequence, I was arguing that you can maintain that Lancelot and Guinevere had not in fact slept together. Um, and I think there are a couple ways in which this comes in uh, uh, relevant here. Um, again, I don't think Lancelot is holding back. The problem that we will see him have is not failing to confess, but whether or not he's going to succeed in following through on his pledges and his confession um, and his penance and his and his uh, uh, his his resolutions. Um, and he does not confess to adultery. I don't think he's committed adultery in the flesh. Um, he's committed adultery in his heart, no doubt, but that's one of what he's saying when he says he's loved a queen unmeasurably. Um, he's confessing to adultery in his heart. Um, something did happen 14 years ago, and that was he tried to commit adultery 14 years ago. Remember, it's not Lancelot's fault that he has not committed adultery with the queen. He did his honest best. Um, to commit adultery with the queen. He just came up short a couple times and ended up sleeping with Elaine instead um, through no fault of his own. That is, he was spared adultery by, no, I suppose I should say, through no virtue of his own rather than through no fault of his own. Um, 
to Lancelot's credit, he's not trying to get off on a technicality here, right? He does not say, well, I didn't actually sleep with the queen, so it's fine. What's the problem, folks, right? That's not what Lancelot goes. Lancelot sees that his love for the queen is a problem whether or not they've slept together, right? Sleeping together would be a sin of adultery. That's kind of a big deal. Mentions that in the Ten Commandments, right? Um, so that's a problem, but that's not what he confesses, right? To him, the bigger deal, and this fits with, remember that first speech of his when he was talking about how he was going to be a lover, right? And why he was going to be a lover. This Lancelot's higher ideal of knighthood, that is what he is confessing breaking, right? Um, he is confessing that he has fallen short of the ideal that he set himself out to follow. And he acknowledged, remember the whole point of that passage was him explaining how this whole loving paramours thing throws that out of whack every time, right? He gets the fact that the worldly standards that they followed before no longer are the standards in this holy quest, right? All the great deeds of arms he's done, for the most part, was for the queen's sake. And for her sake would I do battle whether it were right or wrong. Bad sign, right? That's a serious confession. I didn't remember what his oath was, right? A knight is supposed to be defending the right, not doing whatever it is, right or wrong, just because your lady wants you to. That's bad. That's a serious thing to confess. And never did I battle all only for God's sake. That's what you, it should be to please God, not to please the queen that you're doing your battles, but for to win worship and to cows me the better to be beloved. I did it to please myself, my own pride, and to please my lady because I wanted her to love me more. It wasn't to please God. And I never thanked God for all the good that I was able to do, for all the blessings that I have received. Um, these are big deals. All of these things are big deals. Um, there is a way in which it's a bigger deal than adultery. Adultery is a serious sin, not trying to downplay that, but like adultery is a thing of a moment, right? Um, here he is pointing to that his entire life was systematically corrupted. His whole framework in which he lived, everything that he set about doing was corrupt and was built on a false foundation. That is the serious problem that his loving out of measure has led him to. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's what he's repeating. Does this prove that they've never slept together? No, it doesn't prove it, but it is certainly consistent with it. Also, I can't help but notice the 14-year thing. Um, he dates his loving unmeasurably the queen. Um, to 14 years ago. 14 years is how old Galahad is, I'm pretty sure isn't it? Which means that the 14 years ago dates back to 
like the second incident with Elaine. In other words, the time, the one time that he set out fully intending to sleep with the queen, the time when he actively attempted to commit adultery without sorcery or magic or any potions or anything else. Right. Um, he, um, that seems to be the date that he's giving here, which is, I think, interesting. Um, and again, especially interesting if they never did in fact sleep together. And so in his mind, that was the night when he made the choice to cross the line. Didn't get crossed technically, but that's not what matters. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, let's keep going. This is one of the passages I was referring to when I said that we learn more and more about the significance of everything that's happened. Also, Merlion made the round table in tokening of roundness of the world. For men shawled by the round table understand the roundness signified by reeked. For all the world, christened and heathen, repireth unto the round table. And when they are chosen to be of the fellowship of the round table, they think himself more blessed and more in worship than they had gotten half the world. And ye have seen that they have lost her fathers and her mothers and all her kin and her wives and her children for to be of your fellowship. It is well seen, well seen by you, for sin as ye departed from your mother, ye would never see her. Ye found such fellowship at the table round. This is Percival, of course. Who's, this is Percival's aunt, the recluse, who's talking. So Percival, of course, finds a recluse to explain things to him who happens to be his aunt, right? Anyway, Juan Merlion had ordained the round table. He said, by them which should be fellows of the round table, the truth of the Sancreal should be well known. And men asked him, ho they make canoe them that should best do and achieve the Sancreal. Then he said, there should be three wheat bullas should achieve it, and the two should be maidens, and the third should be chast, and one of those three should pass his father as much as the lion passeth the liberd, both of strength and of hardiness. Okay, just a couple things here. First, the round table and the world, right? Merlin made the round table in tokening of the roundness of the world. For men shall by the round table understand the roundness signified by right. Right? So rightness is round. Okay. The world, all the world, Christian and heathen, repaireth unto the round table. The round table has been established. Right? has been established as the standard for rightness in the world. That's why it's round, like the world is round. Um, it is the standard of rightness and everybody, and notice what people do, right? People go to the round table and they lost their fathers and their mothers and all their kin and their wives and their children for the sake of the round table. Does that sound familiar? Echo deliberate echo of gospel language, Jesus said that, right? He who would not lose his uh, uh, he would not lose his father or mother for my sake is not worthy of me, right? The round table has been that. It has been the worldly ideal of rightness in the world, for the world. 
and now the round table itself the roundness of the table is going to be measured by the rightness of the sancreal itself the round table most of the, the round table is of course going to be found wanting right it's not going to pass the test but the round table will still in a sense achieve its end right there will be those of the round table who will achieve the sancreal um and that is its ultimate goal so just as it has been you know just as it has been a mirror to the world so it is going to it is going to be that state is going to sh the, the the three white bulls from among the pasture of the round table are going to establish this pattern of holiness right um to demonstrate that for the whole world so on the one hand the 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 round table being connected to the world seems like a bad thing like worldly versus heavenly like that seems probably not the best thing and in, in a sense of course it's perfectly true having established the standard of worldly right it's going to fall short of the spiritual perfection and yet it will also provide um the three white bulls will be the uh the the exemplars to the round table that the round table has been on the spiritual level that the round table has been to the world on the on the worldly level all right I'm not going to keep you too late uh let's uh oh yeah we're getting to percival's temptation we'll stop before we get to that but let's do this one here um percival meets king everlake so remember percival comes to this chapel and there's a super old dude with wounds who is asking to kiss the holy grail right and so um he's like uh dude who's that who's the old guy right thon sir percival asked all of the brethren what he was sir said the good man ye have heard much of joseph of arimathy how he was sent by Jesu Christ unto this land for to teach and preach the holy Christian faith. And therefore he suffered many persecutions, the which the enemies of Christ did unto him. And in the city of Saras, he converted a king whose name was Evelech, the one who had the white shield with the red cross on it. And so the king come with Joseph into this land, and ever he was busy to be there as the Sancreal was. And on a time he nigh it hit so nigh that our Lord was displeased with him. But ever he followed it more and more till God struck him almost blind. Blindness, oh, the sight thing, right? Thon this king cried mercy and said, Fire Lord, let me never die till the good kneeked of my blood of the ninth degree be come that I may see him openly that shall enchieve the Sancreal and that I meet kiss him. When the king thus had marred his prayers, he heard a voice that said, Heard is thy prayers, for thou shalt not die till he hath kissed thee. And when that knight shall come, the clearness of your eye and shall come again. And thou shalt see openly, and thy wounded shall be healed, and arst shall they never close. So King Evelake was a follower of Joseph of Arimathea, was close to the Holy Grail, but he came too close to it, right? Uh, ever he nighed it so nigh that our Lord was displeased with him, right? And he was stricken almost blind, wanting to come closer to the grail, to see it ever and more 
closely, right? Which he's still calling out for it. Um, he's stricken almost blind. The ability to see has been taken away from him. Why? It's not his, right? His job is not to achieve the grail. He was going beyond. He was living a holy life. He was follower of Joseph of Arimathea, but he went too far, right? Um, it wasn't his place to achieve the grail. It was for his descendant, right? Um, and so he will see again, he will be healed, and he will see again when Galahad, oops, spoiler, um, his descendant um, achieves the Sankriao and kisses him, right? When he and his descendant kiss. One of the things that we can see here, we are given in this section this sense of a much longer story that we've got these old guys hanging out. King Evelake has been hanging out for several hundred years waiting for Galahad to come. The coming of Galahad is the filling of the the Siege Perilous, right? The Round Table has been waiting for this for like decades, right? Um, but the world has been waiting for this for much longer. Uh, and one of the effects here, I think, is to place the entire story, the story of the whole round table and everything, in this larger context, right? Sir Galahad is the sort of foremost knight of the round table, um, is not just the culmination of the Arthurian court. He's the culmination of this entire story, which stretches from Jesus and Joseph of Arimathea and King Evelake to now, right? And binds them together. This is the real story. This is the achievement. The, the thing that is being achieved is much greater, much, much greater than the glory of the Arthurian court. And Percival, who of course is one of the big three, uh, is the one who's being told about that. Um, and Percival is by far the most adorable of the Grail Knights. Um, we'll pick up here next time when we will look at the temptation of Sir Percival <laughs> and Sir Percival's escape from temptation, um, which is just one of my favorite scenes in this whole thing. Um, yeah. Um, no, and you're absolutely right, Uh imagining the earlier simpler adventures with all these grail figures secretly in the background, quietly going about their business, setting up the quest while none of the round table notices. Yeah, remember the glimpses that we had of that, even back in the Balin Le Sauvage, right? When he like comes and finds the spear of Joseph of Arimathea and stabs the guy with it, you know, strikes the dolorous stroke, right? I mean, these things are lying around. This, this is, you know, this story is has been waiting and that sense that merlin established right of like these things are going to happen um and you're know, going around and writing things up in gold letters and stuff this is the in a sense the ultimate fulfillment right sir galahad is going to be the ultimate fulfillment of all of those things that were uh, meant to be um anyway all right I'll let you guys go. We'll, we'll resume with uh, Percival and some more Lancelot and Gawain also next time, and we'll get a chance to meet Sir Bors. Read through the end of the Holy Grail section next time. We may not get through the whole thing, but 
we're I'm gonna I'm gonna see how far we can get here next time. Um, thanks for joining me, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.